Let's go, T. Let's get it. Back in the building. Another Friday, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Whenever you folks want to watch, view, or listen, we're here for you. Canton, Ohio, Hall of Fame City. Great place. Another action-packed episode on the board here today, T. How, how do you feel about what we got? Well, we got something new today. This is the first time we'll be interviewing um, authors of of the book, actually, Delivering the Digital Restaurant. Uh, they call it Your Guide to the Restaurant Industry's Change from the Inside Out. Um, it's kind of the slogan for it. But really, um, it's all about how the restaurant industry has changed so as entrepreneurs have pursued different avenues of getting food to the end consumer. Yeah, for sure. It's more or less uh, kind of giving, like you said, the end consumer and discussing the ev evolution of the customer, right? Kind mm -hmm. of the the transformation of going from your mom and pop, you know, walk in, order the food to now we have the the, the apps, the websites, um, you're, you're doing the catering, the delivery and everything that comes with it. So yeah, I'm really excited to get uh, the opportunity to sit down with Carl and Meredith. I don't know if you said their names previously, but mm -hmm. yeah, Carl and Meredith. And then from there, we have another meet the team segment with our our good pal Mitchell Kime. Mitchell Kime. Kime time is what we call him yeah. here in the office. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for Kime time. I I love the guy. I didn't know of him or even know he was in the existence of the universe until a week after I got hired with Deliver That. Called crawled into our. Uh, second office at the time i think it was over by the old geeson house uh over off portage and now uh, our director of yeah, dispatch now now he's the director of the dispatch department uh, we got a, a few great things to touch on i know we're going to talk about the culture of deliver that you know versus how it was when he got here and then what it is now with almost 30 employees then also a lot of things that the drivers are seeing on their end now like with the automation the breakfast text the route text um mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff that i think will maybe give the drivers a lot of insight into the dispatch end of, of the company and maybe give them a better understanding of why things are happening the way they are now. Yeah. I mean, we're in for an interesting one today. We got we got authors. We got time time. Let's get into it. Yeah. Let's let's get to Carl and Meredith delivering the digital restaurant. And we are back with the newest guests on the Delivering More podcast. We have Carl and Meredith, authors of Delivering the Digital Restaurant. Thank you guys so much for joining us this Friday afternoon. Welcome. Yeah, we're Thanks happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we, we appreciate you guys so much for taking the time out to joining us. Uh, obviously, the, the time zones making it a little difficult to make some scheduling things, but we, we're making it work. So we appreciate you guys. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. This is our first uh, interview as well with uh, authors of, of a book and, you know, obviously one that's in good relation to what we're here to bring. So we're excited. Well, we're really pleased to be able to join you guys. Obviously, we spoke to Aaron in, in our research for the book and to be able to talk about a lot of the different delivery options that are out there. And I think it's it's great really just to be able to have this opportunity to share with your listeners a little bit about why we wrote the book and hopefully how it can help the industry. Awesome. Awesome. That's a, that's actually a pretty perfect segue into our first question here. Um, your, your reasoning realistically for, for writing the book and maybe the broad scheme of things, what were your guys' first experience within the restaurant industry as children or in your teenage years growing up? Oh my goodness. Well, my first experience in the restaurant industry was trying to apply to be a waitress at several places and being turned down at all of them. I don't think I was ever good enough for the for restaurants. I ended up in retail instead. I'm very good at folding clothes. <laughs> uh, but um, 
absolutely love the restaurant industry. I've spent 10 years uh, between Kitchen United and Taco Bell um, working in the enterprise level of the restaurant industry. And when I think about, and I'll get back to you, Carl, in a second, but when I think about why we wrote this book, um, it was really a kind of altruistic motive, seeing all of the change that was coming, the massive disruption. And this was, of course, before the pandemic. The pandemic only um, accelerated that disruption. Seeing all of that happening and having such a soft place in our hearts for, in particular, the local independent restaurants, who are such a huge part of our communities, such a huge part of our local economies, and really wanting to give them the information that they needed to be able to make great decisions to navigate all of this change. Um, so that was uh, part one of the motivation, and I'll let uh, Carl cover part two of the motivation, of which is Thank uh, you. a little more related to Kitchen United. Gotcha. Yeah, my background really with restaurants started as a, as a child, for like many of us, of course, but. I remember going to my parents' friend's restaurant, this lovely Italian restaurant, and not understanding a word of Italian that they were speaking to <laughs> any of my family, but just the warmth and the hospitality that they extended and being invited out to this beautiful bed and breakfast on the shores of Lake Como in northern Italy, um, just seeing the way in which food around a family dining table just became something far more than I'd ever really experienced before. And I think that is something which in many ways sits at the heart of many people's concerns when we talk about the digital restaurant. It's like, well, is this, does this mean that whole thing is going away? And oftentimes mm -hmm. we, we try to reassure folks to say, look, it's not, it's, it's all about hospitality still, but in a digital sense. And, you know, I, I think for me, as I think about my own background, I, similar to Meredith, I went through more of a retail charge in my early years. And um, in my kind of initial career was largely with BP in the convenience retail space where right. I was running a, a thousand unit chain called AMPM on the West Coast here. Now, out of the billion or so dollars we did a year, about 300 million of that was associated to food. And what I saw even in a convenience store environment was just this change in landscape of how people's expectations around the food they were putting in their body were growing like crazy. And I'd mm -hmm. seen this in the UK, I'd seen this in other global environments, but it was only starting to really come through in the US environment, the C-Store space in, in these kind of recent years. And it was really after I left uh, BP and AMPM when I met Meredith at Kitchen United that I saw just the level of disruption that was occurring across the industry, not just from a delivery perspective, but across everything in the overall restaurant ecosystem. How can you do things more efficiently using all these different technology solutions that are out there? Something we often call the, the sassification of the industry. And in the ghost kitchen context, um, where I was helping Meredith operate, you know, build the operating model for, you know, one of the country's leading ghost kitchen operators, it was just fascinating for both of us to see even the big chains, even the independents, all trying to get to you know, grips with a lot of the, uh, the challenges that exist as to how do you thrive? How do you succeed in this type of environment? And we were driving back um, from Pasadena and the headquarters of Kitchen United one day back here in Orange County. And I said to Meredith, look, it'd be really good if we could give each one of our customers um, a book, a book that tells them why is this happening? And how can we pause, you know, give, give, give them something to just to give them an indication as to where this is heading as well. And of course, a book did not exist. Uh, and so uh, once we had left Kitchen United, we started pulling together the outline for the book. And uh, now, you know, uh, some, what is it, a couple of years on, Meredith, um, we're 
really thrilled just to be able to see the impact it's had across the industry. You know, we got to a bestseller status very quickly and now yes. it's out in four different formats. It's been sold internationally. And yet we're still very much focused on trying to help people that haven't heard of the book be aware of it because it's out there to do exactly what Meredith said, you know, drive an altruistic edge to this industry by saying, look, everyone can benefit from learning from the stories that we've covered. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you guys do a great job of um, just explaining uh, what's happening to like uh, maybe just the common person or, you know, anybody who's interested in it. But you were, you were talking a little bit too about uh, United, uh, United Kitchen and you talk about ghost kitchens as well in, in in the book, and that's something I'm kind of interested in. Do you guys believe that the ghost kitchens are going to be the future um, for 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 um, online ordering and things like that, or just simply another avenue to generate revenue for you know brands that already exist? Yeah, you know, I 100% believe in the model. Obviously, Carl mm -hmm. and I both bet our careers on going to Kitchen United when it had, well, in my case, not even one location open. Um, I believe in it very, very much. Having said that, it's still really small here in the U.S. as a percentage of total restaurant sales, probably less than 1% flow through some kind of ghost kitchen format. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason for that is twofold. Number one, um, it, it takes time to build infrastructure. I mean, even if you're building a new restaurant chain, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to do that. Yeah. Um, but number two, and probably more importantly, we already have a really well-developed restaurant infrastructure here in the U.S. There's probably 100,000 kitchens, uh, sorry, a million kitchens, if you include, um, you know, B&I and not just traditional restaurant formats, probably 600,000 restaurants plus another 400,000 in hotels and wherever else, right? Mm -hmm. So when you already have a million kitchens, building out the infrastructure to add more kitchens that are delivery-specific maybe not the most urgent need, right? And sure. we'll get there eventually and it will have to happen. And you've seen it happen in other categories where a much more um, specialized format ends up taking over. For example, um, you know, we talk about in uh, the chapter, uh, delivery is the new drive-through. When drive-throughs first came out, people just slapped a window on the side of their building. But now <laughs> yeah. drive-throughs are scientifically optimized for the drive-through experience. And they right. are very much, you know, a single purpose entity and they are designed to maximize drive through throughput right mm -hmm. um and you can look at examples like that across the industry i think eventually we'll get there with ghost kitchens as well but it will probably take a bit more time here in the us relative to other countries in places like india and china where they don't have as many restaurants per capita as we have here in the us um, they are skipping ahead and going straight to ghost kitchens because it, frankly, that footprint just makes so much more sense. It's so much more efficient to run uh, and operate. It is so much more efficient to build. And if most people are going to be consuming your food off premise anyway, why are you doing anything but a ghost kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. And I like the point too, that you bring up about the ghost kitchens because on the delivery end for our drivers, you said like there's still a lot that, you know, work to be done. I can see the big picture of why it could really be the future, but you know, like on the driver's end too, sometimes going to ghost kitchens is is difficult because you, you arrive to one restaurant that's actually another restaurant, you know what I mean? And they work out of that kitchen and they have no idea where they are. So I feel like there's a lot of evolution to be had there, but also a lot of opportunity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I did want to skip back a little bit, Carl, when you mentioned the, the multiple platforms that delivering the digital restaurant is on. I know, I think Tristan listened to it on Audible as as well did I. 
And you, you did a great job narrating that. I just wanted to mention you had a nice uh, soothing accent to listen to for those minutes long. The chapters were very easy to get through, very well deciphered. So it was very nice and, e and smooth listen, I'll say, not necessarily a read. So I appreciate you guys putting it on the, the multiple platforms. It was very nice of you guys. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for that. Any uh, any new parents out there? Uh, it can also work really well for sending your children to sleep. So that's another option. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. You yeah, know. no, yeah, I think it's very interesting topic points. But I did just want to circle back real quick, Carl. When you you mentioned the multiple platforms that delivering the digital restaurant is available on now, I know Tristan and I, I believe both listened to the book on Audible, and you narrated that. So I just want to say personally, you know, from our perspective, we really appreciate you guys utilizing those many platforms to get your book available to as many folks as possible. So that was very nice of you guys. No, thanks. Thanks for shouting ass on that. I mean, it was, it was really uh, requested by so many different folks. You know, I think a lot of people now choose mm -hmm. to consume books through an audiobook um, environment. And I think people that are commuting, folks that are working in the kitchen, it's an easier way perhaps to get access to the material. So uh, appreciate that. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. And do you, we want to dive into the book now a little bit? Yeah, let's get into the book a little bit here. Cool. I um, so uh, just starting out here and, um, in chapter one, you have, uh, the chapter we eat as a nuclear family no more, which I think is an awesome title, by the way. Um, you guys discuss the gray family, um, and going to the millennial, millennial generation and, uh, the world of convenience we live in now. And this was out of curiosity. I want to ask you the question. Um, do you guys believe, I mean, in more in terms for the restaurant industry itself, um, the world of convenience is a good thing moving towards the future. In that way of you know the applications the ordering are restaurants being overwhelmed things like that oh my goodness that that is a multi-pronged question i think in general <laughs> yeah. at a macro level it's absolutely a good thing and it's mm, what course. has um caused the restaurant industry size to eclipse the size of the grocery industry right food food away from home is now bigger than food at home mm -hmm. and really that is a long-term drive toward consumers needing more convenience in their life, needing more food that's more ready-made, ready to go, ready to eat. Um, so for the industry overall, I think it's a it's a great thing. Now, um, specifically, are they overwhelmed? Well, you're introducing new channels, um, in many cases, several new channels, right? If you've got DoorDash and Uber and your own first party channel and people are still calling you and they're still walking in the door. And of course. That yeah. can be very overwhelming. Um, and you're also then introducing new logistics off the back end. So is the consumer picking it up? Is the driver picking it up? Um, what's happening there? Are they eating it in the actual restaurant? And then the complexity you brought up earlier, virtual brands adds one more thing to it. Like which brand is it going out of this kitchen? Right. Um, and then how do you get all of that stuff to talk to each other? Um, and there are so many uh, technologies available, which is a blessing and a curse, right? You can get anything done you want to get done for a small monthly fee. Um, Carl has taught me. He's uh, he's a big user of SaaS platforms, and it's amazing what is out there. Absolutely amazing. Now, the downside of that is that that kind of requires that every restaurateur be a technologist in a way, right? right. Because they have to sort yeah. through all these different technologies and figure out what's best going to solve the problem that their particular restaurant is facing in a way that fits with their restaurant brand and their consumer set. And there is not a one size fits all, like everyone should just do this that I could um, say to your listeners, because depending on the circumstances, there's a different set of things that make sense for each restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other side of this is just, we started with that chapter very purposefully. We wanted to demonstrate that it's the consumer 
that's driving this change. It's not the technology companies. It's actually the consumer and just the way in which they're living their lives that's actually saying they need to have more time. They need to have more convenience in their lives to be able to make things work. And also just the change in priorities as to how you know our parents might have been raised and the thoughts that they were going through their minds in their 20s are very different from the 20-somethings today and the available targets and milestones they set themselves. And so this whole idea of it's not just about the convenience. It's still, that is very much a factor. It's also about the fact that I want to experience what I want when I want it. And this whole idea of saying, if I can try this new restaurant or this new type of food, I'm not going to wait and save up the money to be able to do it. I'm going to get it now in the way that I want it. And I think that mentality kind of comes through in this chapter as well. And this, this kind of thirst for experience, this thirst for convenience and this thirst for ease, because the demands upon average, the average customer today are that much higher. Yeah, I mean, I know too for me, like on, like you're talking about on the consumer side, it's been a great thing. And um, Meredith, you touched a little bit on the restaurant side. I know that we have a uh, a really busy Chick Fil A over here in 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 um, our city. And the owner, you know, when COVID happened, got to close down the actual eat in part of it, and he absolutely loved it because nobody was coming in the door anymore, and he was getting so much business just through the drive through. So it can be a really good thing, but you know, other things might have to adapt and change as well. That's right. It requires a different mindset to go after it. The other thing I would note about that chapter, um, you know, I think I also love the title, so thank you, but I think it can be (laughs) a little scary for some people. Like they feel bad, like, oh, we're not nuclear families anymore. Does that mean that like we're getting divorces? Like it seems sad somehow. And that is not at all the intention of it. The intention of it is actually a lot of really great news. We are living longer. We are getting married later and having kids later and therefore hopefully more mature when we do. Um, We are having fewer children. So we're closer to replacement rate for the environment. Like there's all sorts of good news in there. But what that means is the percentage of our adult lives that we're spending inside of a nuclear family is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. When you combine all of those things together, um, it's just a very short window where we even have the opportunity to eat as a nuclear family, right? But most of our adult lives, we're living with roommates, we're living alone, we're empty nesters, um, a bunch of ways that are very different from what has happened in the past. Um, and as a result, the economics of eating change. So by that, I mean, if you're a single person living alone, is it cheaper for you to go to the grocery store and buy a whole bunch of stuff, half of which will go bad before you use it, spend a bunch of time making it so that you can feed yourself? Or is it cheaper just to go to a restaurant and get a ready-made meal and not have to like carry an inventory of spices for something you may or may not ever get around to cooking, right? Mm -hmm. And that change in the economics affects how people make decisions about the things they choose to eat. And so, you know, I think a lot of our parents, um, generations tend to say things like, oh, you guys eat out all the time, you're wasting money, you know, I can't believe that you order in all the time, like, it doesn't compute for them, because for them, uh, cooking at home was a a way to save money. And historically, you know, making your own lunch and taking it to work was a way to save money versus going out. But as the, the profile of our households changes, the economics of our food decisions change along with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I'd say, and like you mentioned, you know, when you're going to the grocery store and a lot of times it's almost like you're, you're cleaning out the fridge a week and two weeks later, throwing out all those leftovers. So why didn't you yeah, just totally. order the meal I went to the grocery store, so I have to clean the fridge today. That's not right. good, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's my life. You could just order to exactly what everyone wants. You eat, you throw away. Hopefully maybe the materials are recyclable or com- compostable and then you move along. 
Um, I, I did want to, I hate to be like the circle back guy here again and again, but you guys, I think Carl mentioned briefly in the, in the intro that you guys were writing this book before the pandemic started, obviously. So the, the release of the book was almost like, uh, came along with the catalyst of the pandemic as well, where the consumer was put in a position where the delivery aspect of everything wasn't even a, um, like, uh, I can't think of the word. Um, it was a luxury, right? And then it, it became a, a necessity in the end all be all. So that consumer mindset, like you, like you guys said, you focused on how it was the consumer that really was flipping the needs, not necessarily the the technology companies. So the pandemic really accelerated those needs and really you know changed everything and, and accelerated it to being this whole different evolution of what we're seeing now, which is the, the restaurants having to adapt to all this new tech and you're integrating new POS systems, new backend systems. We have restaurants integrating robotics now on, on fryers and things like that. Articles are coming out as of late. So like you said, it, it really became um, a wild whirlwind of, of consumer necessity, not even a luxury anymore. Yeah, that's totally right. I, I think um, we often get either uh, people speaking to us saying, well, once the pandemic's out of the way, things are going to go back to how it was. And we go, no, 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 this this has just been an acceleration event. Uh, and so, you know, as much as Meredith and I back um, at, in the host kitchen world were, were telling people that this off-premise world is coming, and we were talking about the idea of virtual brands back then, nothing has really sped things up as fast as what the pandemic has done. And that's largely because of alternative verticals. You know, when I go around the local Amazon Fresh store here, um, where I can walk around with a dash cart and have the items put in, and it's basically allowing me to walk right. out without speaking to anyone, I'm actually seeing around me five packers versus one grocery customer mm -hmm. today, right, at this stage of the pandemic journey. So more people now are under of the understanding that they can get anything delivered whenever they want. And they're just saying, yeah, that's that's the way I want to do it now. That's that's much more convenient for my life. And so it's not going to just be in the food world. And that's also why the third parties are increasingly now starting to broaden out beyond just food. You know, when I, I was doing that, I showed Meredith this uh, picture of my inbox from all the emails I received from DoorDash in December. <laughs> and out of the, I don't know, 30, 40 emails, about 30% of them were about something to do with non-food items. Uh, florists, pharmacy, pet food, right. you know, st stuff like that. So it just goes to show that people are starting to get their belief in delivery in a way that wasn't present before the pandemic. Of course. And, th and then Meredith, you mentioned the the nuclear aspect of the family and that, that it's not um becoming more spread apart and like less, um, less camaraderie, I guess, within the family, family unit. But like you said, the, the generational gap, like your parents and our parents, you know, you, you grew up as kids and it was always, hey, we're eating dinner at the dinner table, right? All everyone's at the dinner table. There, there were no phones at the time, so it wasn't put away your phones. Now it's like maybe, you know, these kids, you, you're ordering food, and then everyone gets their dish, and then you're going and sitting down in front of the TV, and you're not necessarily even having that like familial interaction that you used to growing up as children that everyone else used to experience. So the the generational gap of things really, I think, there's a, a large portion that could be spoken to that. It, really the digital restaurant, a later generation might not even comprehend what's even happening right now. Yeah. You know, I think that was absolutely a hundred percent true before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, but because of 
COVID and how it affected older people relative to younger people, you saw a massive acceleration in the use of delivery among older cohorts, which was very surprising. And that's a huge part of what accelerated the adoption of these of these platforms. Because um, historically, you probably would have said the older generations just never would have gotten there, right? They would have right. they would have been like, this yeah, is crazy. True. You're paying to have someone else bring it to you. Just drive down the street and go get it, right? Yep. But when all of a sudden it was a safety issue, um, it made a lot more sense for them to experiment with it, have their kids teach them how to use it. Now, I guess I would take exception to, does that mean we have to eat? you know, alone? Probably not, right? My um, my favorite place to order from here in Orange County is Pit Fire Pizza. And uh, when we order from them, I get a salad. My husband gets a pizza. I eat some of his pizza. I don't want to make myself sound too angelic here. <laughs> and um, my son gets their noodles. He loves their noodles. So we all get something very different, all customized, you know, to our own taste profile. But we still eat it together. We still sit down at the dinner table and have a conversation and eat our dinner together. So just because the food is coming to you in a different way doesn't necessarily have to mean that you break that communal bond um, together. And it's much like uh, the story Carl started out with that you can still have hospitality in a digital environment, even if, you know, a third party is delivering your product someone the restaurant doesn't employ. It's not the consumer. Uh, you can still have a connection between the restaurant and the consumer. You can still uh, engage, ask them how it was, do a table touch uh, virtually, right? And in many ways, hospitality, we would argue, actually gets better in the digital age. And I think the easiest way to imagine this is to imagine your experience going into Kmart when you were a child versus your experience going on Amazon now, right? right. When you went into Kmart, did anyone know who you were? They did not right? The blue light special, did it have anything to do with you? It did not. Maybe some days you'd be like, yes, I really want that item. But I'm I'm totally dating myself right now. Right? You guys are looking at me. <laughs> no, like, no, I, Kmart? I think um, the Kmart but, around us closed down. We were like, oh, like was, nine. You yeah. didn't know anybody there. They didn't know you. They didn't recommend like the perfect item that you should totally try. The promotion that came on had nothing to do with you as an individual consumer. It was just the thing that they decided to promote that day, right? Yeah. Now you fast forward to Amazon that's a lot of hospitality on Amazon. They're like, welcome, Meredith. They know exactly who I am. We think you'll like much. these things. They show me my own store that's totally different from your store and Carl's right. store. Right? It's curated. And it's as we get those same tools available to us in restaurants, which is, I think we're at the front end of, we will be able to have hospitality in that same way where it's completely personalized to every individual And it is completely consistent because technology is either executing the idea or at least recommending the idea to a human that then executes it. And that's something that for but the most special humans, they are not capable of doing at scale for everyone who walks into their restaurant. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also cuts down on the workload, um, the amount of people you need. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I mean. Amazing. Well, let's uh, continue on. I know I'm going to read directly from my notes here because I have a, a quote from the book, but uh, chapter three, delivery is the new drive through. Obviously, we appreciate anything focusing on delivery. So this is one of my uh, premier chapters in the book. But uh, the quote <laughs> specifically says, in 2017, the American consumer had an epiphany. Delivery was even easier than going through the drive through uh, I think that speaks 
unbelievable volume. So what we just touched on with the pandemic and obviously really accelerating the need for, for delivery. But I mean, do you guys think there's been any other things that happened within the past, you know, one, two years that really were like epiphany level um, notoriety that these restaurants, these consumers like had to evolve almost instantaneously? Or do you think there's still a few to come in, in the short time, like time frame we have moving forward? Well, I think the the consumer um, does. Uh, it depends on whether they have a conscious epiphany or whether it just happens to them, and they go, right. "Oh, this is fantastic," and they they appreciate it. So, yeah. one of the things that I think is emerging in the consumer mindset right now is the concern of how their data is being utilized, um, and I think those are very reasonable concerns to have. We all know that the various different stories that have dominated the the news media in, in recent years. Um, and that has led to a level of concern from people whether they choose to have a particular social media profile anymore or how much should they put out into the world of the World Wide Web for people to really get access to. Um, in the same end, we're in a place where over the course of the next few years, restaurants are going to get a better grasp on how to actually take advantage of customer data. Now, part of this is in the third party to first party conversion swing that needs to happen more so that um, restaurants are starting to use third parties for customer acquisition and then first party platforms, their own website, their own app, whatever that may be right. for them as a means of being able to develop a digital relationship with their customers. So that way to what Meredith was just referring to, you can start to understand what their buying preferences are, to, to understand where they are at their time of life, to start putting them into an appropriate bucket, if you will, to personalize the offer that they want when they come to your restaurant. And that is something that can happen, but only when there's an underbelly of data management underneath it. And so I think anyone, not just restaurants, but anyone that's recognizing the value of being able to utilize data to enhance the customer experience needs to treat that data responsibly. And they need to have the trust and earn that trust from those that people are given, you know, the, the, the trust that uh, they've empowered a company with to say, I'll give you my data, but I don't want you to misuse it. Now, I think we're going to start to see ways in which blockchain starts to play a role in this. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think that might be a, a way in which customers start to feel a bit more comfort. I think we probably are going to start to see some more federal oversight in the way in which data is utilized and refreshed. I think yeah. we're starting to see that come through, particularly around email management lists. But I think what we'll see in a, in a one line phrase is that over the next couple of years, we'll see cu customers continue to go through this journey of comfort around their data. And we'll get to a better place where they can start to see how their data is going to be used to give them a better experience. Yeah, I have to say I'm, I'm in the boat of um, like you like you mentioned, um, it just happened. Uh, your guys' book brought a lot of revelation to me in that sense where how, the, you know, the menu is being catered to me. Like these are things that I like I thought were convenient, you know, but now that I realize that really they are utilizing utilizing the data to personalize my experience. Like you said, which is kind of scary to me, but also it's extremely convenient. So we got to try, try to find that middle ground when it comes to that situation. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, that is a super important thing for the industry to, to tackle together as an industry and think about because there is huge amounts of convenience and what we would call frictionless commerce in recommending the right thing to the right person at the right time, right? When you receive an offer that is for something you actually want to eat, Mm -hmm. That is great for you. 
Um, but it is also a little bit scary, right? Because what has happened in the rest of our economy where personalization has become very, very common is that people end up um, kind of down rabbit holes because if this works, I'm going to give you more of that is kind of how all these algorithms right. work. And you could imagine a world where, you know, let's say you've been an, an unhealthy eater your entire life um, and made very poor choices. And then you have an epiphany and you decide, I would like to um, eat a much more balanced diet. I'm going to treat myself occasionally, but most of the time I'm going to eat really healthy. And you just have constant barrage of unhealthy food coming at you because those were the choices that you made in the past. It's very hard to change, right? For sure. And as an industry, I think we have to think about how do we avoid um, just having those algorithms conclude that more fat, more sugar, more salt equals more sales. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, um, the not, not I don't want to get into like politics or anything. That's not what we're here to here to do, but like the, the, the news and everything with the eyeballs, like, it, it's just like, are we here to make things jump out to these people and immediately like have them just tap on the link and not even really read the article. They just see the headline and consume that and that's it. Or are we here to produce a uh, valuable and consistent substance and quality? Like nowadays it's way more quantity over quality and we need to really revert back to a, a qualitative and much more you know safe space, I think would be a, a yeah. good way to and put it. I'm, I'm very hopeful that all these digital tools can actually enable um, higher quality food. You know, when I when I think about robotics and automation and software and ghost kitchens and uh, plant-based foods and all these things, when I think about those levers that we have to pull, the right person is gonna combine them in the right way to bring right. higher quality, more convenient food to the consumer at a lower price. And that thing's gonna take off like wildfire. And I don't think anyone's really figured out the right combination of all those things yet. Uh, but when they do, it is going to be hugely popular. So I don't, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom. That, wow, this is such a scary future. Um, but because I do think there's many wonderful ways in which all this technology can be used. But I think it's something that we as an industry need to be conscious of and make purposeful decisions around. For sure, not not necessarily doom and gloom, but a very realistic perspective. I would say, just you know, pointing out the flaws. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I want to kind of skip ahead a couple of chapters. I know there's, we're going from like three to 10, but I did want to really highlight chapter 10 because it doesn't, like Carl mentioned in the beginning, it includes our CEO, Aaron. Um, I know you guys had many conversations with him. I know he really appreciated and loved being a part of this book for you guys, um, but it was gig workers are the new servers. Um, and you guys really highlighted the alternatives to like, we'll call them like the big dogs of the, of the delivery age, like the, the platforms, right? And was there a, a big reason you guys wanted to highlight the alternatives like Deliver That, like Loco and John Sewell? And then also, uh, Carl, you mentioned briefly you're, you signed up, I believe, for DoorDash. I don't know if you actually ended up taking deliveries on the platform, but could you speak to that experience and then just why you really wanted to highlight alternatives to those, those big guys? Sure. I think it's one of Meredith's favorite photos of me uh, holding the DoorDash bag. Uh, she, hey. she shares it with everyone. I'm not sure it is. but hey, uh, Email that over to us. We'll, we'll throw it up. Um, <laughs> look, it was really important, um, not just for the purpose of the book, but also back in my time with Kitchen United to understand the mindset of the driver. In fact, it's the, it's the number one thing I love about what you guys are doing at Deliver That in the sense that the driver is at the center of your organization, your culture. And I think um, that has been 
the kind of thesis from day one when Aaron set up the company through to where you guys are today and the size and scale that you're at. So for sure, it was something I wanted to make sure we covered in the book because in many ways, the delivery part of this overall ecosystem represents still the largest level of opportunity for improvement. And what, what I mean by that is for the, the big third-party marketplaces, it's right now one of their biggest costs. And it's quite frankly, probably something they really find very difficult to manage and optimize because of all the different labor challenges that exist around it. For the restaurant, they look upon the driver as you know someone that doesn't employ, isn't employed by them. The restaurant staff look at the driver and go, you're taking my tips away from me. Mm-hmm. And they get, you're getting in the way of my other operation, my core business, my dining customers. And so the driver, um, and very much the way I felt when I was going out and picking up and delivering um, various different food packages to customers, is often treated like, you know, this kind of second rate part of the overall ecosystem. For sure. And so this whole chapter was trying to demonstrate, look, no, these folks are now the representation of the new server. Mm-hmm. If you treat them in the right way, if you help them see about what your business is, see the, share with them the stories about how your restaurant emerged, what you're trying to do with your food, and help them feel like an extension of your brand, much like what you guys try to do, then actually they're going to be more in, uh, involved. They're going to be more empowered to give a great guest experience. And, and oftentimes, and we can, we can use this in the delivery sense, but we can use it with every part of the, the digital touchpoint of a, of a transaction in an off-premise world. If you could try and compare it in an on-premise setting, this is the equivalent of, imagine I'm a server and I've picked up a plate from the kitchen and then I've been treated badly in some way by the, the restaurant manager. And so I'm feeling glum and then I'm going, I'm thinking, well, what the heck am I working at this place for? And I throw the, ta- I throw the plate on the table and walk away from the customers. What kind of experience is that for the guest? What yeah, experience is that for the brand? So if, you're, if the drivers, the gig drivers that are supporting this ecosystem are treated poorly or try to be rushed out the door, then guess what they're going to do with your food package when they deliver it to the customer? They're not going to be really caring about really that customer and, and whether they've had a great experience, whether they're going to enjoy the food. They're going to be interested in their own pur- their own purpose, and that is how can I get in and out and get as many delivery drivers as I can get in this particular hour. So that was really at the heartbeat of this chapter. Why did we feature as many different options out there? I think it's because the industry is still trying to figure out what is the best way to do this. And um, I'm not sure there is a complete solution to it. I think there's a number of different solutions that are being worked through, and I think that's okay. But I think regardless of the uh, the delivery mechanism, the driver mechanism that a restaurant chooses to work with, how you treat the driver is always going to be critically important. That is very accurate. I'm actually very impressed, too, with how well you understand that, too. Um, it, it It's a balance, too, you know, in finding the driver as well. So, you know, there's, there's a very, um, I want to say clear cut, but there's a specific kind of person you want to um, be an extension of your brand or, or a driver that can be an extension of, of, of a restaurant's brand. And that's somebody who, you know, really wants to put in the work. A server comes to work, you know, you, you know, eight to 12 hours a day. And, she, you know, they know, he or she knows that they have to work. Um, a driver sometimes picks up in the gig economy, picks up that work because it's of its convenience. And um, it's sometimes you you might find somebody who's not as invested. So trying to provide a restaurant with somebody who's truly an extension of their brand isn't always the easiest thing because some people are just doing it for convenience to make a quick dollar. Other people are really out there making a living. But that really takes investment and time. And not everybody's out there to do that. So 
And they do, like you said too as well, sorry, um, getting treated, how they get treated. If one driver is treated poorly on one platform, they might assume the next platform will treat them that way as well. So that's, that's a difficult hurdle for us to overcome. Um, and you want to make sure everybody is treated fairly or feels like they are taken care of. But, you know, when you have, you know, hundreds, thousands of drivers, that's a difficult task as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it remains one of the biggest challenges, but for that same reason, it remains one of the biggest opportunities and it, it's the way in which many can distinguish themselves. Yeah. And I think when you were going on, Carl, you kind of mentioned the, um, not necessarily like a butting of heads, but the interesting power dynamics when it's a driver going into a restaurant and they're, you know, sometimes the, the employees, the managers, maybe not necessarily to put a terrible light on it, but look at these drivers as taking away opportunity from those employees or from those managers. So how do we navigate those situations to make them understand, like Tristan said, like Carl said, we're just an extension of your brand. You know, how, how you treat us is how we're going to treat the customer lo and behold, is, is most of the time how it's going to go. So are there things you think can be done to navigate those waters uh, a little better or make things a little less you know, daunting or treacherous moving forward? Or do you see anything that brands are doing nowadays that really kind of stand out? Well, I mean, the, the, first, the first thing I'd say is the whole theme of the book is a part of it. If you look at delivery as the stepchild channel of your business, and treat it some way differently to the other channels, it's not going to be right. You're not you're not going to treat it in the in the right frame of mind. And I think what we're trying to say through the book is treat this channel seriously. Treat, I mean, when you were mentioning chapter three before, if you treated drive through as some latch onto the side of the business, it would not be achieving the results that it achieves today. Right. Drive through is successful today because it's been built into the overall business model. It's integrated into the overall operation, and so for that same reason you need to do the same with delivery. Now, a, a, a great example of something that many restaurants have already started to do is the representation of a pickup counter, right? Yeah. Where, you don't, where you've got clear the sign, indications yep. of exactly where to collect the food from. You know, when I do, I do occasionally these off-premise reviews where I go out and I show the digital experience of ordering and then going to collect from a restaurant. And there's one particular one where I went to a sushi restaurant and I get to the front door and there's three or four customers in front of me waiting to sit down for a dining experience. Now, where, where do I go? Do I, do I wait behind them? Right. Or is there yeah. another place for me to go to to go and collect? And ultimately, there was no indication as to where I should have gone to actually collect my food. So, so that right there is simple kind of customer traffic dynamics as a way of being able to help not only pick up customers, like in that example, but also delivery drivers to know exactly how they can get in and get out quickly. Getting in and getting out quickly is really important for drivers because mm -hmm. the more drives they do in a particular hour, the more money they're going to make. The exactly. way in which the, the restaurant thinks about when should I prepare my food? Do, there are so many restaurants. You'd, you'd be amazed by, well, probably you guys wouldn't be amazed because of the industry you're in, but the um, most people are amazed by the fact that there are a lot of uh, restaurants that don't start the order until they see the driver turn up at their door. So guess what? The driver's waiting there for 10, 15 minutes. Right. And then that means they'll, they'll be lucky to get two orders in that particular hour. Uh, so th these kind of things are the ways in which restaurants, if they if they reframe their understanding and the belief in the driver, if they can actually see the value that giving the driver in and out quickly is a great experience for the customer, then ultimately everyone wins. Cool. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of closing it out here. We have uh, one last question to 
chapter 12 was uh, attracting the customers who get you and kind of uh, speaking to maybe catering towards your brand specifically and, and the customers you want to attract and use you specifically. And I know Meredith, I, I saw, I, I browsed your guys' LinkedIn's a little bit before to try and get some, some backend details on you guys. I didn't previously know that you actually worked for Yum Brands in Taco Bell. So I, I didn't know if that story was actually um, like you and your personal and you like use someone else's name or that was actually someone else who did that, had that interaction with the story. And like the, she said, the man, I, I'm going to butcher this, but she says she she's brought on and she's like, no, you guys need to refocus everything. And like basically trashes them and tells them like they're doing everything completely wrong. And they need to know that that was it. not me. Um, and I will not even pretend to be a marketer as Carl. Yeah, uh, it was no, the marketing, right? Yeah, how you're marketing finance, the brand. Yeah. real estate development, strategic kind of person. But um, the the two two women feature heavily in that chapter. Both were from Taco Bell um, at the same time that I was there, which was during a brand turnaround. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but uh, somebody sued Taco Bell for not having beef in their beef, and it was so erroneous, like such a false claim that it ended up being withdrawn like thrown out of court, like not relevant, but the, the damage headlines. to the brand was enormous, yeah, right. right? Because if it, even if you say something that's false, if you say it loud enough and consumers hear it, they kind of wonder, right? Yeah. Is there some truth to that, right? And yeah. um, so at that time, we had a whole bunch of um, new and really remarkable people come into the Taco Bell team and modernize the brand in a lot of ways, because what the brand had been about you know, way back in the day, which was great, accessible Mexican food. Um, and and you guys are probably too young to remember this, but I mean, it was the first Mexican chain that taught many Americans what Mexican food was. They had to teach people how I'm to pronounce young. the word taco. I mean, it was so different, <laughs> right? And where they had gotten to was this place of, you know, being on TV, yelling about promotions in a funny way, which had nothing to do with their Mexican heritage, Right. And I think um, what finally turned the brand around um, and unleashed just a fantastic last 10 years of performance of the brand was going back to the roots of understanding why, you know, why does this brand exist? Why does it resonate with so many people? Right. Half of America eat there every single month. Like it's crazy. And um, being able to say, this is what we stand for. This is what we're about was important to their turnaround. It's equally important to an independent restaurant, right? Every single brand needs to know, why am I here? Why do I exist? What service and value am I bringing to my consumer? And if they have absolute clarity on that, then all the decisions become really easy. You know, should I be on Facebook or Instagram or on TV or in a mailer? That decision becomes really easy if you know what you're trying to communicate and who you're trying to communicate it to. For sure. And yeah, I, I think, yeah, what you're speaking to, and we always talk about deliver that is finding your why. And I think for Taco yeah. Bell is the the live moss slogan is what they kind mm -hmm. of ended up interpreting as their why. So yeah, just, just ending up finding a, a concrete why and something you can really believe in and captivate the people by helping them understand why you're a, not necessarily a necessity, but you're even doing what you're doing really can mm -hmm. end up creating a better relationship with your, with your end consumer. So yeah, Absolutely. that's a great way to put it. But that's uh, I think that's all we we got for you guys. I, I really appreciate you guys coming on and joining us here. I know took we're we're at about forty five minutes, so usually I, I didn't mean to take up that much of your guys' time, but I do appreciate you guys entertaining us for this long. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No,
we'd, we'd really welcome the chance for your, your listener base to get a copy of the book if they haven't already, of course. Um, our website uh, for, for their reference is deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to go to something easier, just remember learn.delivery and it will redirect you there. Yeah, um, but we'd nice. also like to extend your listeners a discount code if they're interested in getting a copy direct from us on our first party channel. Let's go. Let's Love use, that. Uh, deliver 20 and they'll get a 20% discount as well. Of course, if they prefer the convenience of a third-party marketplace, Amazon has all of those different options too. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we, we appreciate that more than anything, giving, yeah. giving our viewers and our listeners a little discount. And we, we do have personal copies. I, uh, I just uh, maybe forgot my backpack at home this morning that had my copy in my backpack. So that's but, uh, why it's not here. But we did get discounts. So I'm a little bit upset about oh, that. We can we can arrange that for more people in your company. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, we would love that. We would we'd much, much appreciate that. But again, thank you guys so much for taking the time out to join us. If you guys want again, like you said, delivering the digital restaurant, check it out on Audible, buy it on Amazon or use the discount code they just provided learn.delivery. And hopefully we see you guys very soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. We'll see ya. Woo! That was a good one. I was I was very I mean, I knew reading the book that they they, they knew what they were talking about, but I was very impressed with the amount of knowledge they had on this on the subject. For sure. Especially yeah, Carl's like pinpoints on the on the driver experience. I think obviously he, that. he did it himself on a platform, so he really had like je- not generic feedback, but like actual perception of what goes on that we see every day, realistically. Yeah. And also like reading the book and also some of the things they mentioned there brought revelations to me about like, I didn't even realize that, like I said in the interview, some of the things that were happening, like with these online applications, the evolution of people and how the industry is catering to that. It's crazy. It really is. And it's catering to you specifically, right? I know. It's it's scary and like scary and crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Hey, I mean, hopefully, yeah, it's going to be used for good moving forward, we'll say though. So Mm -hmm. we can always applaud that. But uh, let's get into, I I love Carl Meredith, but I'm very excited for this. We we prefaced it in the intro. Kime time. Mitchell Kime, director of Dispatch. He is now in the booth with us. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How we doing, fellas? I mean- Better that you're here, man. Yeah. Yeah, Better we're good. I mean, it's we're closing out Friday talking to you, man. So how how could I possibly complain? Yeah. Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, I, I try my best. Yeah, I mean, and for all you who don't know, Mitch is actually my direct boss. So give him a hard time in the comments. He will be fired after this. <clears throat> Immediately. All righty. Well, let's get into these questions we got for Mitch. Learn a little bit more about you. All right, Mitch. Um, first of all, when did you get started at Deliver That? And how did you get um, in here? So I started October of 2018. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I knew uh, Aaron and John before before I got started in here. Played baseball with Aaron growing up a little bit um, towards the later years of high school during the summers. Um, and it's actually my third business venture with Aaron and John. Um, we started with a pyramid <laughs> scheme. We worked our way to a roofing company, and now we are delivering food. So, uh, so yeah, it kind of fell into my lap at the time. I had just gotten done playing baseball in Europe. I was working a labor job over at uh, Sully's Party and Tool Rental, um, putting up tents, basically yeah. swinging a sledgehammer Love those tents. all day long. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, so I was kind of at my wits end there, and it just kind of just like other things in life happened. It just fell into my lap. 
um, John randomly texted me and just wanted to check in, just seeing how I was doing. And I hadn't spoken with John in probably three years at this point. Um, and I've spoken on a regular basis. Might have checked in a few times while I was overseas and stuff. Um, but uh, just hit me up to see what was going on, how everything's going, and then told me kind of what they're getting into. Um, so I was like, perfect. I hate what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me come <laughs> check it out. So the very next day, I told my boss I will not be at work tomorrow, that I have something going on. Um, went and checked out our uh, our little office over next to, um, what's the Giesen old German House. bar over there? Giesen House. The Giesen House. Uh, right next to the Giesen House. And me checking it out was me dispatching for about seven hours straight. Um, next to wow, next to old Benny right boy. Away. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, and Our from little there, MacBooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And from there, um, I I don't remember the exact timeline of me getting away from my old job and starting full time with Deliver That, but I know it was very quick. Mm-hmm. I know it was kind of uh, just the environment that I wanted to be in, um, and and it was very different than swinging a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. So uh, so yeah, that transition was was pretty quick and painless. Yeah, and now and now we're what 2018 four years later well three and three and a half basically at this point will be four in october but yeah i mean i i wanted to reference obviously like we said now it's been three and a half four years later initially you're brought on to our second office technically which is notoriously we'll dive down this rabbit hole later the black mold office and then we moved into another office in the same allotment and then now we're in the current office we're in so We've had four office spaces total. You've been in three of the four. What is it like for you from beginning to now where we are? Like the the company size, the delivery volume, what what's it like? Or comparatively, what would you say about it? I'd say they're all trending in the same direction. I think we uh we have a lot more drivers now. We have a lot more deliveries, a lot more partners, and a lot more office space. And along with that, a lot more of employees. Uh the team has grown probably what times three or four since, sure. since my first day at least. Um, a lot of people in and out of the door, but we've kept a pretty pretty lean team, is what we like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, the the culture shift since then has also been um, has also been huge. Yeah, for sure. Because I think it, I'm I'm running back through the numbers in my head. Your employee number. Well, I can just so we had founders, then we had Dan, then we had D. And we had Jim, Chris, Jim, Christian, yeah. then you. So you're six. I believe when I started, and I don't know if we'll bleep them out or anything, but Gindy and Blake were already in the office. True. I, wow. Yeah. I didn't, uh, <laughs> I honestly completely forgot to consider people that aren't here any longer. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even consider that. So yeah, tech. So out of the employees that are still here, you'd be like number six or seven. Cause yes. I came on like literally like five days before you, like we were hired, I think almost yeah. within a week span of each other. So it was back to back. Um, and, and we've been here since. So got to appreciate That's that. Yeah. And that would have been nice to know going into it that you had just started Cause I had no idea. I thought you had already been working. So I was just trying to keep up with you. So, I mean, it speaks volumes to you as well that I thought you were like vetted in it and you just started as well. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm like ninety percent positive. I was I was there for like max two weeks because because we had just got to that office because I remember Jim had just moved the plants in the office. That guy down the down the couple offices that he stole the plants from came in and reamed us out. So I mean, yeah, the, th- that first night there, that first day where I just stayed in dispatch, however long, I made uh, a trip back to my apartment and came back to help paint. 
Yeah, yes, yeah. We painted the whole office blue. Yeah. 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 Oh, so man. that really? first day was yeah. probably yeah. a 12 hour day. Yeah. I, <laughs> wow. wow. I completely forgot we painted that whole office as well. That was, that's wild. Can't, oh, wow. That was, that was a lot. That was probably exciting though, you know, because, you know, it was the beginning of a, you know, the evolution of a, of a company. And you, I mean, you guys were in there painting the office. Like, you know, that people, really people don't do that. Get hired DT today. Bright blue doors. <laughs> yeah. Bright blue doors. It was wild. You're probably like, wow, this, this has a future and I'm here in the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I, I saw that opportunity because obviously knowing, um, knowing Aaron going into it, there's just a lot of faith in the kid. You know, he's obviously done a lot of great things with his life. And like I said, he was, it's my third business venture with, with Aaron and John. Um, but Aaron in particular has always, no matter what we've done, we played ball together. He excelled. We did, we did the, uh, the pyramid scheme. He excelled. We did the roofing. He was the best one in the group. So it was uh it was just kind of easy, you know. It wasn't like I was being thrown into a five person company of all people I didn't know. You know, I had one one uh well two connections in there, but one that I fully believed in, you know, one that I knew wasn't gonna get me into something that that would steer me down the wrong road. For sure. Right. For sure. And that 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 basically wraps up the the beginnings of your time at Deliver That. And we're we're gonna kinda jump ahead to where we are now. Obviously, there's like we said, there's been three and a half, four years of time frame in this story of Mitch's, which we can delve into in, in a longer episode. But mm -hmm. as of lately, we kind of want to touch on things that drivers are seeing on their end and, and what our employees are seeing on their end and specifically the automation side of things. So we're talking texts we're sending out, breakfast routes, we're talking cancellations, we're talking um, wait times. You know, there, there are a ton of things we're really trying to automate on our end. So what have you seen that you're working on in the back end that maybe Tristan and I aren't seeing that you're working on with Christian and Aaron? And then what can you tell our drivers and these partners we're working with that they can expect in the future that will maybe alleviate some some problems on their end? Yeah. So um, so as far as stuff that we would be working on in the background that you wouldn't that you guys wouldn't know about. Um, I mean, we're you guys know we're an open book. You guys are fully aware of everything that we're working on. Um, uh, but other than that, for for our drivers, we're we're trying to make it as seamless as possible. We're trying to make it um, as easy as possible for you guys to get from point A to point B um, and make good money doing it. Right. So so there in the future, there might not be as much day to day communication with our dispatchers um, as far as like full blown text conversations or uh, or these longer phone calls. Um, now, I know that that helps us build relationships and we'll never fully get away from that. Um, but the idea is we want we want to be as productive as possible with the leanest team as possible. And just up until recently, we're doing a lot of things very, very manually. You know, yeah. we had we had humans sending out hundreds and hundreds of pay disbursements manually two times a week. Yeah. Um, and that just up until recently has has now been changed. You and I um, both did that for a time. For a, yes. Well. Thousands. Yes, too. Yeah. Um, so there's just there's just a lot of these little tedious tasks that on, on the driver's end, um, it might seem like a big change to you guys or even just a minor change that you guys do enjoy. Um, but a lot of these just little changes for us are actually monumental. You know, if we can get if we can get a computer doing doing the jobs that that humans can and having the humans interact with you guys, other humans, you know, that's that's where we start building those relationships. That's where the business starts growing. Um, because yeah, just in the past, we've just wasted a lot of manpower on stuff that we didn't need to. And that's a great point too, because the human touch point is so important. Um, and I think we always want to keep a piece of that, like you said, but, um, really the idea is to make things easier and more, um, profitable 
for yep. the drivers as well. So, I mean, it's going to, you know, there might be a little bit of give and take there, like you said. So For sure. I th- and I think what you really touch on too is we're, we're not eliminating the hu- human aspect of it, right? You're, you're still always going to be able to call into the hotline and speak to someone. You're still always going to be able to text someone and have a, a brief conversation. But we're really trying to take away like the monotonous task that a computer can easily do. Like, like you guys texting in saying, hey, please add this wait time. Well, we can easily automate that to where you guys just text that in the application and it's just added. If you need a, a toll reimbursement, we can automate that. If you need a gratuity added, we can automate that. You know, so so really the monotony of things is what we're trying to eliminate, not the relationship side of things that we're still always going to continue to build. Exactly. Yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head there. Um, I would like like Ben said, the the lines of communication will always be wide open. Uh, we're just trying to open it up a little bit more, so there's not so many touch points, so that that we don't have to speak with with the driver six different times throughout one delivery. Um, we rather, much rather have that be one or or none, right? Mm-hmm. For sure, man. Well, Kaim, I appreciate you taking this 10, 15 minutes to sit down with us today, man. Um, always been one of my favorite people in the company. Don't tell Jim that. Don't tell D that. I'll gladly tell T that. He knows I don't care for him. But uh, let's, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time with us. And T, I'll laugh that off to make it not as painful. Yeah, whatever. It is what it is, folks. It is what it is. <laughs> let's get out of here. Kaim, can you, uh, Jim's going to throw up a link here in the bottom of the video. Just give me a little point to the bottom of your phone screen. I deliver that.com slash podcast. Shoot it out for me real All quick. All right. I deliver that.com slash, slash podcast. Go like, subscribe, and comment and, uh, and help us take this thing to the moon. He said it. Like, share, subscribe, folks. I deliver that.com slash podcast. Send in your questions. Sign up to be a driver. And we will catch you guys next Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>